This is Book Circle Online. I'm Jeffrey Masters. In his new book, Outrageous Fortune, Anthony Russell guides us through his childhood at Leeds Castle. He writes, "Money and lots of it appeared to grow on trees, but there would be consequences for being handed everything of a material nature on a plate, with no clear indication of what one might be expected to do with such good fortune." Outrageous fortune is filled with funny and poignant stories from a world that many of us will never experience. Anthony is here today to talk to us about his new book, and after we're finished, make sure you head over to iTunes and download his album "I'm in Love with the Band." Check out www.anthony-russell.com for more information. From the Library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online. Featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey, thank you for being here today, Anthony. Thank you very much for inviting me. Of course. So I have to tell you,、uh, last week when I、uh, finally looked up pictures of what Leeds Castle is,、um, I was I was blown away. To be honest, it's. Extraordinary. Very few places that I am aware of which are more beautiful. Yeah, of course. I think you said、um, in your description that no words could adequately describe that. And looking at it, I I understood that. Yeah,、um, I do. I do write that in the chapter about Christmas. At that particular time, at that particular age, seven, seven years old,、um, it was something that. I literally could not put into words. <laughs> Now I have a little bit of an easier time doing so. Of course, but then it was just so truly spectacular. And at that particular moment, that particular age, and that particular Christmas holiday, it all seemed to fall into place miraculously. <laughs> and、um, uh, I just can't I can't describe to you how magnificent it was. Yeah, I believe that it was.、Um It was almost too much to take in for the photo. Like I couldn't process everything about it, from the moat to the like mile and a half drive, as you describe.、Um, it made everything kind of make sense about what you're writing, and about that、uh, Christmas memory, especially. Well, very little made sense actually at that time, to me, as a seven-year-old. Age again,、oh, of course. <laughs> I, I,、um, we have to understand that what. What I was writing about in my book was not just、uh, an adult's perspective; it was also the child's perspective.、Um, very much divided throughout the book, and、uh, the Christmas story、uh, is very much、uh, the child's perspective. And although I do add a few little touches、uh, from from the adult, but everything because it was so magical and because it was so special.、Um, The fact that the drive was a mile and a half long, the front drive and the and the two other drives were also almost a mile long, was, was not something that、uh, I thought particularly odd because it was all I knew. Right. That was literally all I knew, and yes, it was it, it was special, but I didn't realize quite how special.、Um, when did you realize that? <laughs> <laughs> You might say it was a,、uh, a sort of slow process. Sure.、Um, it started. I'm about to contradict myself. It started when I was five, but that was because at five, for the first time, I actually left my nanny in the nursery to go to a school, because I literally lived in a bubble in London and at Leeds Castle for those first five years, and I really saw very few 
people apart from Nani. I saw my brothers a little bit, but they were five years older and four years older than me. Um, so very few your age. And so I literally saw very, very few people. Wow. And my parents, mm, not so much. But when age five, I went away to school and I started meeting other boys. There were no girls at that time at Hill House, the pre-prep school, as we called them. That is to say, preparing you to go to prep school, um, where you went when you were eight years old. That's another story. So there I am. I go to Hill House the first day. Uh, I'm five years old. And I was expecting either Nanny to walk me because the school was probably eight minutes walk from where we lived, Edgerton Terrace, Knightsbridge, very nice part of London, very beautiful, close to Harrods. Most people know where Harrods or what Harrods is, one of the greatest stores in London, maybe even the world. Um, my mother turned up, and there she was, fully dressed at... 7.30 or quarter to 8 in the morning and this was a complete miracle to me absolute sensation, I thought what the devil was going on my mother <laughs> holy cow and she took me, she took me to school she parked her lovely Bentley given to her by her mother, the lady who owned Leeds Castle Lady Bailey um, and she drove me what was an, I say, an 8 minute walk or so, the <laughs> 4 minute drive 5 minute drive to Hill House and took me in and it was from that moment on, age five, that I started to meet other little boys my age. And I realized that they didn't all live in castles for some strange reason. I thought, what the devil was going on? <laughs> um, of course, I didn't say anything because I was just about smart enough not to sure. start going on about that sort of thing, banging on about that sort of thing. But then I started, that was the slow process beginning about, boy, do I live... In, in a special place and in a special kind of way. Um, the, uh, the, the process, uh, in fact, is probably never-ending, actually. Wow. It probably goes, uh, it will continue throughout my life, but at least I think I'm, I'm adjusted to it. Of course. What I, what I call the castle way, where, where my grandmother died and my life changed and I came to live abroad and went to live abroad. Um, you know, the the effect of living in a glorious place like that, of course, lingers. But, yeah, you um, describe never, like, wanting anything, whether it be drawing a bath or fetching a newspaper. What uh, vestiges of that remains today in your life? <laughs> I'm not quite sure how accurately I should answer that. <laughs> uh, very little. But if I'm going to be strictly honest, which on this particular day, maybe I will, uh, a little bit. A little bit lingers. You maybe know, I should ask your I'm wife who's here. Maybe you should a better ask. answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just about to say that, but I didn't want to upset the program. By no, you, of course. Uh, uh, calling her over to the microphone. <laughs> but uh, any time you'd like to do so. Uh, we'll get the real story. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> of course. You know, uh, I, I've always known that I, uh, I'm, I've been spoiled. It's uh, in my head. It's crystal clear. Um, and, but and yet in America, I think the term spoiled brat is always together. Hmm. And while you were spoiled, I really didn't get the sense that you were a brat. I thought, I mean, I did not know you, of course. Maybe it was just your writing trying to flatter your own self. But it seemed very self-aware and uh, respectful. 
No, I, I don't think I would have called myself a spoiled brat. <laughs> and I have no idea what other people were calling me. But the element of being spoiled, you know, more, more spoiled than a Buckingham Palace corgi, is the way I like to describe myself way back then, uh, was literally just becoming aware over this period of time of, of what I had. And, of course, what others didn't have in comparison. Of course. Uh, and this manifested itself in, in so many different ways over the years. And, of course, as one gets a little bit older and becomes a teenager and you start reading more and you start hearing more and meeting more people, uh, it became more and more clear. And it became more and more clear that I should keep it all under my hat, too. Right. Because um, it's a very un-English thing, anyway, to tell people all the wonderful things you have. And I felt also in your book it was very un-English to um, question anything it was um at least from my perspective you were told to do things and you did them just willingly and almost content i was not one of those people who um rebelled against authority ever until the swinging 60s came along <laughs> so and when i say ever that was until the age of about 11 or 12 sure and suddenly I realized that to me there were more important things in life than the sort of life I've been used to living, being brought up in, and that just happened to be where that sort of explosion of, of um, call it rock and roll if you like, but it was a lot more than that. It was the, the way everybody was uh, thinking and the way that the sort of people who were uh, becoming the leaders of the country in sure. virtually every walk of life. Not just politics and business, but also in in music and theatre. And uh, there were these angry young men writing plays that people of my parents' age thought were deeply offensive, deeply offensive. Uh, angry young men, indeed, uh, uh, but very brilliant, of course. Writers and the uh, the footballers and the uh, and the models and the photographers. These were becoming people who actually started to become leaders. Of, uh, of society in a way and they were being written up at as being uh, very important people compared to the sort of people who I'd always thought were very important people sure. or at least I'd been told were very important people and that was uh, you know the aristocracy I suppose right. you'd say and the people who'd been ruling the country for about 800 years from yeah. their comfortable perches in the country houses and and, uh, yeah, there's and the a House massive of lords in London. Yeah, there's a massive importance on like lineage in the UK, and then I guess was that the time when that started to fade away? Well, it had started a bit earlier. I think it had started at uh, the beginning of the century. Lord George cut uh, the House of Lords in half virtually. He tried to boot all those guys out who'd been inherited titles and been running the country for seven hundred years in those days, and it sure. was eight hundred when my father became a peer himself. Uh, I was actually very surprised in the overlap on the um, U.S. and U.K. Um, royalty, if we will, or um, aristocracy. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that, was it your mother was born in America? Uh, my grandmother. Grandmother. My mother's, my maternal grandmother, Olive Paget, was born in America. Her father, Almeric Paget, who became Lord Coimbra, uh, was English, and her mother, Pauline Whitney, was American, and she was from the Whitney clan, and the Whitneys in those days were Let very, 
rich. Legendary. They, they of were very rich indeed. You know, they were up there with the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts, and yeah, uh, they were. I guess you would call them. In fact, I write about them as being uh, America's aristocracy for a short period when America, I suppose, did have. An aristocracy. Yeah, I think I, very I guess briefly. they don't really anymore. They certainly don't. I think we've think like they do. fast of celebrities, but they come and go. Hmm. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, you're saying Maybe that celebrities are, are, our new are the new aristocracy, the new royalty? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, maybe. maybe. Maybe they, yeah. Maybe. I guess what in my book, yeah, I see what you're saying. Because in my book, I say that the pop stars and and the um, the and the uh, footballers and the, and the photographers and this that and the other becoming the new aristocracy in the sixties. I guess you're right. In yeah. America, the the celebs were becoming. Especially since we had nothing to hold on to, we had no like vast lineage stretching back in time. So we just had to pull what we could find. I think America does have those families. It's just that they they don't have titles, of course. They don't have these vast areas of land which have been in their family for long periods of time, I mean, literally for centuries. Sure. You know, I think the American families who go way back, they exist. and They're, they're still there. And I don't just mean the ones we've mentioned already. Of course. The ones which are famous for their fortunes. I'm talking about the ones who came over the Mayflower. I'm talking about the ones who... Uh, oh, I signed the Declaration of Independence. I'm talking about those Americans whose, you know, their I, families are still around. Of course. Those are aristocrats. They probably wouldn't want to I just can't name that. them. Yes, of course, like by name that uh, I know of. Well, funnily enough, um, Whitney was one of them. Whitney came over from England. Oh, did they? Yes, from England. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the original John Whitney, I think he was. He was a John Whitney. Came over in the, in the 17th century, made a little bit of money but not much in, in Massachusetts and you know hmm. the family grew its fortune slowly but surely and then in the 19th century it became very Massive. large sure yeah. how do you think your experience would have changed had it been in America like growing up with that much wealth do you think it would have been fairly similar um, yes and no the cousins who I know well the Whitney cousins had a life of spectacular luxury as well, you know, um, John Hay Whitney, or known as Jock Whitney, and his sister, they had this amazing estate called Manhasset on Long Island, which was as big as the Leeds Castle estate. Really? Uh, well, actually, it was not as big as the Leeds Castle estate with the um, the farm land, but it was as big as the parkland. You know, several hundred acres in in Manhasset, Long Island. And they grew up there, and then they had a place in Maine, and then they had a place in, uh, oh, sorry, microphone, down south. And yes, they lived a similar life. It's just, if perhaps you would say it wasn't the same historically. Sure. These, these places hadn't been around for 1,100 years, but it was still very nice for them, no doubt. Of course. Very nice. Yeah, I mean, in reading about, like, the Cassaway, did your grandmother call it that, or was that your no, nickname? No, that's me. Okay, just to make sure. But I'm um, reading about it, I had to remind myself that this didn't happen um, in the 1440s with King Henry. It was, like, fairly recently. It just sounds like a perfect replica of a time well, from the past. Yeah, I, I studied the Norman Conquest at my um, high school, you'd call it here, yeah, Stowe school where I went 
uh, between the age of 13 and 18. My A-levels, they're called advanced levels. I studied the Norman Conquest, and it was one of my favorite topics of all time. And so I knew everything about feudal England. Oh, uh, sure. Norman meets Saxon becoming feudal England. And as I got a little bit older, living at Leeds Castle at weekends and holidays, it occurred to me that this is exactly the way my grandmother was sort of um, steering her ship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it was very futile. She is at the top. Under her, she had her important barons, and under them, the next important. Everybody was very high. Everything was very hierarchical. It's pretty amazing, yeah. Mm. And, and I, yet it wasn't... Um, people didn't get their heads chopped off. Sure. And their villages weren't burnt to the ground. In fact, quite the country. They it just got a telephone bill and not invited back. Ah, that was right. very special. <laughs> that was that was a very special little example of uh, Castleway rules. I believe right. that was rule number four. Oh, was Rule it? number four. <laughs> if you don't pay your telephone bill, you're not invited back. Well, either think about it, it's uh, maybe a dollar or two for the weekend. It's not too much to ask when you think about what you can... Of course. Can and I also couldn't help but think that maybe it was the um, it was the routine exclusion inclusion of you like in the social circle that maybe that's what kept you like off kiltered but also perhaps a little more grounded in that sense. You know, it's hard to be given everything you'd like materially and not at the tension. I found. Yeah, uh, it was only later on that I realized I had been given everything that I wanted, and then realized that this luxury brew had really infiltrated my head absolutely to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. uh, it was another of those slow-growing processes, though. You know, over time, I realized that I'd been sipping on this brew, indeed quaffing it down uh, to such an extent that the sort of the realities were being pretty much obscured of what was not just what was going on, but actually what I might expect in the future. Oh, really? And when did you start to like articulate and process that you wanted to do music? Oh, well... That, was that forever? <laughs> that, that was quite easy, actually. Probably about the age of six. Really? Or seven. Yeah, first of all, it was Cliff, my my boyhood hero, who was the English Elvis. So, okay, just because you don't know Cliff doesn't right. matter. Boyhood Elvis. Got it. Can you imagine all the American kids who wanted to be Elvis when they heard him? Of course. So Same at six, you not only liked music, but you wanted to pursue it as like a career. I wanted to pursue it. I thought I wanted to pursue it, but I really knew I wanted to pursue it when I heard the first two Beatles albums. Oh, wow. And tried to learn them within. Well, I actually did have a, a little guitar because I'd been given my first little guitar at that Christmas that I was just describing, that famous Christmas, 87. Um, I was hoping for the electric guitar that the <laughs> guitarist in Cliff's band played, sure. Fender Stratocaster. Very disappointed. Did not get it. It was a little acoustic number. In fact, it was a Spanish number. Even worse, I thought, oh, goodness gracious, what do I do with that? But I did actually learn how to play it just a little bit. And uh, yeah, by the time the Beatles stuff came along, I was ready to learn them. Yeah, I love those chapters, especially since like the American folklore of Beatles is that they arrived on a jet and they were an explosion. And then Don and me, oh yeah, they had to have built up a following and albums. Well, yeah, mini history. <laughs> they yeah. spent years. <laughs> they spent years, especially in, in Hamburg and, and under very tough situations sure. learning how to do what they do. Of course, it just so happened that it turned out they did it rather better than everybody else.
very yeah. much. And then when they found George Martin, they did make this record in 63, which my, my brother saw them. My br- older brother, David, who was at Stowe, the absolutely spectacular school uh, where the Dukes of Buckingham used to live before it became a school. I mean, when I say spectacular, <laughs> I hated it when I was there. But I have to confess that, yeah, to look at it, it was spectacular. Uh, the Beatles played there in 1963 at the school yes they did wow and my brother David saw them and he came home in April having seen them a uh, the couple of weeks or three weeks before with the LP or as we called it in those days LP long praying record uh, called it a CD now I guess yeah and so we played the LP on these great big uh, radiogram marvellous giant piece of mahogany furniture huge speakers inside it this is pure fifties, of course. Sure. Uh, to look at, um, yeah. and is that what you? When you say you wanted to be a musician, did you want to just like write and sing and like make music, or did you want to be like a rock star like the Beatles? I wanted to make music like the Beatles. Okay. I just love music, which was incredibly melodic and up, and yeah. just made you want, it made you feel good. I just uh, wonder if that like stardom was appealing to you as well. Can't deny that aspect. Definitely not. But by the time I was actually trying to do it, age 20, 21, um, that was when it was much more a case of, oh, yeah, I'd like to be a pop star. Okay. Much more. The combination of wanting to play music, wanting to play music that I had written, and also wanting to be a pop star, you know, make lots of money and do all the things that pop stars do you know lots of girls screaming <laughs> can't be bad and is it um i apologize for wording this rudely but is it perhaps like ironic that that's like the one career your family's like name and money couldn't get you oh <laughs> it never occurred to me that they could possibly help okay never is that why maybe like it was you liked it because it was like something you could do on your own i thought naively that the songs I had written were really good. I thought the guys I was playing with, this is after school, this is age 21, as I was saying, um, I thought the band was good. And I thought we would play as often as we could, and I thought we would make demo tapes, and I thought we'd get an album deal, and I thought we would be successful. Little did I know that that was not exactly how things work. Sure. And that was pointed out to me in no uncertain terms by no less a person than Armit Attican, a legendary man of music, who I was introduced to by my father, and I met with him, and he listened to my music, and he was actually incredibly kind to me, and gave me the opportunity to record and to to have a go, and he sort of implied that I had, uh, maybe I had what it takes, skill-wise, talent-wise. And he also implied that maybe I didn't have what it takes to to do what I needed to do. And that is, you have to pay your dues, as the musicians say to each other. You have to actually go out there and play night after night after night after night, quite possibly year after year, without even a thought of doing anything else other than building up your reputation and your skills i.e. not exactly what I did. And did you know that at the time, that no. you didn't want to? No. Oh, uh, oh like, yeah. I thought I wanted dues. to, and I thought oh, okay. I would. 
It just didn't work out that way. Sure. Other stuff got in the way. You're going to ask me what that other stuff is. What would that other stuff be? Um, uh, the other stuff was uh, the good life. Uh, those uh, the, those spoilt corgis, we you know they they didn't go away; they remained in my head, and uh, the castle wave was very much present and hot wired, as uh, as I write, uh, in my system. And I was fortunate enough when I went to New York with my tapes, um, and went to see the folks at Atlantic. Unfortunately, I had to wait quite a long time for them to make up their minds. So I was very hopeful that Atlantic would take me on. They didn't indicate that they were definitely not going to. Uh, there was no indication at all that there was sort of no chance. Right. I mean, Armand Erdogan never indicated that at all. In fact, he's quite the contrary. He said, you know, he said, keep plugging, keep calling them. Because even though he was the boss, the boss of, of boss, boss of bosses, um, there were other guys there at the, uh, at the company who were basically responsible for saying yes or no to me, as is always the case with A&R departments at record companies. But anyway, eventually they they said no. And then I find myself in New York. I've been waiting for a while. I had my cousins, who, as I've explained, you know, were not exactly badly off. Of course. Uh, living the good life. I had English friends who had been over for a while in New York and of course New York in 1976 was a booming city not necessarily as a as, as a city financially but it was booming socially it was booming people were coming in from all over Europe people with ideas and wanted to do stuff like me and all other walks of uh, life and all other types of occupations but it was just happening you know and I just met more people in the space of a month or two in New York than I'd met in my entire life in England. And I also found, rather bizarrely, that I was treated incredibly well. I mean, I was accepted with open arms, and I was regarded as being almost a bit of a star. Good grief. He's a Whitney, and he's the son of a lord. And holy mackerel, I said to myself, they think that's important. <laughs> Yes, they did. Really? Very important. I was in the gossip columns before I even knew it. That was also kind of weird. Interesting. Mm. I guess, did they, had they never, like, met a lord before? Uh, um, that I don't know, but <laughs> I, I'm sure they had. The thing is that it, it did seem to mean something that I wasn't aware it did, coming from England. And that felt good. Yeah, because in England, the gossip columns in, uh, in those days, and indeed up until not that long ago, when the whole business of lords and ladies and, and dukes and marquises sort of faded from the gossip columns and the gossip columns were taken over by very rich people and people who were just sort of the opposite, you might say, of lords and ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, also the, the sports people. Sports people and TV people. The, these are the guys who are the gossip columns right about in England now, and I think that's probably true here, too. But in those days, it were, they were writing about, in England, the lords and ladies. And when those lords and ladies came to New York, they went absolutely super crazy about the whole situation. And so you had your, your American, very rich, 
in the gossip column. Susie was the name of the lady who used to write all the time. She, she was the number one gossip columnist in New York. Okay. I can't, can't remember which paper. So if you were in Susie, or if you weren't in Susie, <laughs> and you were a top socialite, you were in a very bad mood that day <laughs> after your dinner party or something. But Susie just loved all those lords and things. And there I was. There was in, I was in Women's Wear Daily all, all the time. <laughs> God knows why. But WWD was, was very big on writing about that sort of thing. So I was thinking, reading your book, that is it weird having people know about all these experiences in your life, like positive, negative, but all very personal. I guess that's been a part of your life, your entire life. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, most of those situations, I think, had a positive and a negative. Most of them. Um is it so weird, the, though, that like just meeting people that know this much information about you before you know them? Um, as a result of the book, or, or way back when, um, in the seventies, when I, people knew about me. I guess in both. We can start with the seventies. What I thought was weird about that is that people would attach such importance to it. But having accepted it immediately because it seemed to work rather well, uh, I thought, why not? Yeah, it's enjoyable. Why not? This is this is good. If that's the way they like it, and that's the way they do it. Huh, and what about now with the book out? Now with the book out, well, the thing is that I've probably spoken more about myself over the past month than I have in <laughs> 50 years. It's a very strange thing. Uh, you know, I've been in England talking to people there, uh, even the BBC for crying out loud. Um, that was quite fun. Uh you know, talking about myself, especially into a microphone for the benefit of of the audience, uh, has never been something I've ever thought about I would do. Mm-hmm. never occurred to me I would ever have to do. Um, so you think you never thought you'd be talking to people in that sense or writing no, a book? No. Uh, ah, well, that's something else, isn't oh, it? Okay. That's something else. Uh, no, but what I'm, what I'm saying about not having spoken like this about myself before that mm-hmm. much. Now I find myself doing it all the time. <laughs> Is that weird? <laughs> uh, so it's uh, a little bit, yes. Right. A little bit. Sure you get used to it, of course. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe. All right, let me know. And so what made oh, you I'm, decide to write the book? That's right. I'm used to it. Now. Okay. I'm, how long have you been doing this for now? I'm really used to it. <laughs> um, what made you decide to finally write this book? It is, uh, well, and without question, a very peculiar thing to write 320 pages about yourself. So, why did I do it? Um, I never intended to write a book. Uh, but at some period in my 50s, I, I um, you know, I used to think quite a bit about Leeds and uh, so those days when I was little and all these incredible things that used to go on. And the story that used to stand out for me was when my grandmother had this ceremony, which it happened to two times a year, normally speaking, of uh, of not just popping ducks into a pond. You know, she was very into birds, ducks, birds, you name it, especially exotic birds. But she loved her ducks, and there were plenty of ponds around for the, um, to pop them into. But instead of just popping them in, she actually organized this very elaborate ceremony 
and the most important guests of the weekend were invited to step into their Rolls and Bentleys and drive down the drive in convoy to witness this ceremony of not just popping the ducks into a pond, but having them launched, almost like, you know, uh, a spectacular battleship or or a new aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, oh, yeah, that, uh, those, those were funny times, weren't they? So I wrote a little vignette, and I called it The Launching of the Ducks. And it was just a few pages, and I sort of put it in a drawer and whatever, and maybe showed it to the cat and I think maybe one or two other people who thought it was quite funny so after more than one or two thought it was quite funny and and they suggested I should try another one maybe you know you must have tons of stories and yeah it occurred to me that I did have quite a few stories long story cut short uh, I started to write more of these little tales about childhood at Leeds and eventually I had a little book and it was I don't know, 50 pages or 40 pages of a, f- of a few tales and then that got forgotten about just for a little bit but eventually I showed it to somebody who showed it to somebody and then I found an agent who said you know, you've got to write it properly of course as a book, you can't just sure. and then I said to myself Okay, I accept that challenge, you know, and I literally did it to see if I could. I wanted to see if I could do it, write a book. And here it is. Here it is. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think I enjoyed the story so much because it was so opposite, um, entirely unique from anything that I had experience with growing up, especially your relationship with a nanny I loved. Um, That didn't exist in my world and even if it did it was a person that would come for like four hours a day mm. and leave for friends it wasn't somebody who's like with constant contact 24 7 mm. every day of someone's life that was extraordinary did you love that person very much i Were did you close to her yeah uh, and you're saying in the book uh yes yeah absolutely and i loved i especially the scene when she's telling you um giving conversation tips before you're going down to tea and mm. um it was just the perfect character. We we were very close. Of course. Nanny and I. Absolutely. Um, all that time spent together in the nursery in London and in, in the nursery at the castle. We were very close. And we knew each other so well. And, you know, that conversation, as I was writing it, I could literally see us talking, you know, in, in, in the nursery with all these portraits of gloomy ancestors on the wall. Um... Yeah, there were some aspects. I mean, I enjoyed writing this book very much, but there were some aspects of it I really enjoyed doing, and that was one of them. The Christmas scenes and 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 that scene with Nanny talking away. Mm, yeah, loved it. And it's wild for someone to, and um, to devote their life to you, but also the castle, like seeing the pictures and now talking with you. I kind of understand like how she was able to, and everyone else who worked there. Yeah, uh, she was in a difficult position. Nannies were in difficult positions in those days. I think nannies these days, you know, they have, they fulfill different roles, nannies these days. You tend not to have nannies anymore who are a highly trained 
who actually go to college to be a nanny. <laughs> right. And they have special uniforms and they have basically they're there all the time too. All the time. Nanny had one holiday a year in the summer, two weeks, um, when my parents were away and when I went off somewhere. With, and she would sleep in the next room next to you, correct? She was either in the same room or we shared a room. Wow. As a, as a little thing, I shared uh, a nursery bedroom with her. Yeah, the, the bedrooms at uh, the castle, the nursery bedrooms at the castle were literally the size of uh, an apartment. Wow. I mean, they're big rooms. Yeah, I and can't imagine spending... We had the three of us in that. My brother James was also... Was she the, the nanny room. for all of your siblings? She was nanny for all three of us, yeah. And my older brothers had another nanny before me, but that nanny left just at the time when I was born. So wow. this nanny was my nanny. I can't imagine spending all day, every day with her, but also with anybody, <laughs> to be honest. That's so like outside of my realm of um, what I've been raised with or comfort zone. Mm. Well, it was only up to the age of five, remember? Oh, no. Mm. Yeah, because uh, after the Cause age of school... Oh, yeah, because when I was going off to school, life did change. Okay. Uh, It was, I had friends back to tea, and I saw a little bit more of my brothers, because in the holidays, I was old enough to join them and doing this, that, and the other. Oh, I see. You know, I saw a little bit more of them, but still, not an awful lot. Did you ever see more of your grandmother? Ah, no. 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 Neither grandmother. But for some strange reason, even though I saw very little of them, they were overwhelmingly powerful influences. I guess their influence was was such that, uh, you know, they just had this this way of doing things that struck me as being really quite something Yeah, in its own right. And then when I did actually get to spend time with my granny A, which is, of course, who is, uh, was my father's mother, uh, she would come to London occasionally. Also a castle we, owner. <laughs> also a castle owner, smaller castle, very pretty castle. Um, then the combination of the two was was very interesting because uh, Granny A, my father's mother, Granny Amptill, was uh, was very very fierce, but also incredibly charming and delightful and clever. And she was just she covered the literally, she covered all the territories. A spectacular woman and. I didn't get a chance to spend enough time with her. But the time I did spend with her was a combination of marine boot camp and charm school. It was great. Was she trying to, like, repair and influence you against the Castleway? Well, yeah, no, no, she wasn't like that. She would never have tried to do something like that. She had her own way, but if somebody else had their way, that was fine too. No, no, she didn't interfere in that way. She did interfere in, in another way, because when she came to stay in London, uh, she would tell uh, my mother and my father and nanny and anybody within earshot exactly how to do everything, 24 hours a day. But that was just, uh, that's just her way of telling us she loved us, I suppose. Wow. Mm. That's so nice. And now, um, before I know we're running out of time, but you have this book out, you have a CD as well, on, is it on iTunes? Anything else yes. you want to plug before we leave? Yes, <laughs> it is on iTunes. Thank you for mentioning it. Of course. It. Yeah, it, as of two days ago. Yeah, it's a it's a CD I recorded in 2003 as a tribute to my mother. Oh. And, um, you know, I'd always wanted her to hear my music, 
You'll hear my music as a successful musician. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But, you know, after she died, I the first tune I wrote was Dear Mother, which is the first track on it. And uh, there were some other good tunes on it. It's, it's a sort of beatly. It's very beatly. For some I strange, to strange <laughs> reason. I'm not quite sure why. But, yeah, thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, of course. The CD's up there, along with other information about Outrageous Fortune. Of course. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Of course. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And to all of our listeners, we will see you next time. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menunos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.